0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with author, speechwriter, and poet Joel Dean on his eagerly awaited new novel, Judas Boys. Dean's protagonist of sorts, Pinnick, is, as the title suggests, a Judas Boy, a private schoolboy gone to seed. He's lost his job as a political staffer. He sleeps in the garage. Of his estranged wife. He has finally run out of friends, and must face his accusers, both the living and the dead. This book is a searing de profundis that reads like the secret history behind today's political headlines. Dean brings the aftermath of professional catastrophe, personal betrayal, and public disgrace to life, with a poet's ear for the human voice fractured in extremis. To interview and introduce Dean, here is Reading Zone Mark Rubo. I hope you enjoy their conversation.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Mark Rubo. I'm chairman of Readings, recently retired full time, but I'm coming to you from Orunduri country in the land of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past and present. And I'm really, really pleased to be talking to Joel Dean, who's the author of The Judas Boys, just published by John Hunter Publishing. So, Joel, Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Tell us a bit about your background, because it's pretty interesting, and I mean some of it probably comes into the
2: book. I'd say a lot of it comes into the book. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, one of those country kids that moved to Melbourne when I was a teenager, went from a pretty rough Catholic boys' school in the country to a rather posh Catholic boys' school in the city, St. Kevin's at Turak. So I was living in the top of a shop at North Fitzroy and then started going to Turak on the train, which was quite a um a culture shop to say the least. I started working in newspapers as a tabloid journalist when I was 17. Did that for, you know, at the gripe old age of 21, 22. I retired from tabloid journalism and and sort of found my way into speech writing and politics. Worked for the Labor Party until uh, in my mid-20s. I went to America for about six years and worked in startups and technology startups in san francisco for six years or so came back and became a political speech writer again for the labor party started publishing books at that point they have been out on my own as a freelance writer now for 10 years that was sort of brought on by the fact i had a stroke in my 40s which nearly killed me and so that's a sort of the nutshell of, of me yeah i mean the thing is is that like i've published poetry nonfiction. I i write essays for australian book review i do I write in a lot of different genres and the fictions are very particular based. It's very different. It's hard. I find it really hard to write fiction, but I love it. So
1: the Judas Boy, the central character, Pin or Patrick Pinnock is a country boy. He gets a scholarship to go to a Catholic boarding school and he also
2: goes on to work in journalism. <laughs> yes. That's why I mentioned all that, but you know, as I've, it's not autobiographical, but obviously I've plundered a whole bunch of my life yeah. definitely. and it, it's a book that very much comes from my experiences and people I know, and including my father, people I went to school with. It's a book that sort of came out of a um out of grief and guilt. My dad died about five years ago, and I was sort of figuring out a lot of things and and I started writing this book without actually knowing what I was writing. And it was only in the process of writing it that the story emerged, almost a cathartic process of writing the novel. It's not a novel that I started with any plan or even characters. I just started writing.
1: I found it an incredibly powerful novel really, really well written and beautifully written. It's sort of two time zones, isn't it? The pin, as you refer to, this Patrick Pinnock, he's just had a personal crisis and he starts to think about an incident when he was at school with, a, with another boy or two boys, really, they're not very nice characters. Pin, the central character, uh, almost grasps (laughs) at being decent
2: (laughs) and then fails. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he does. One of the things that goes with getting older is you look back and you see the patterns in your life and you see where you've gone wrong and where you've hurt Mm. people. And I guess Pinix at that point in his life, and he's looking back to the 1980s when he was a schoolboy and comes back to the present day, and he's a... Ex-political staffer who's disgraced himself. All the things he's run from his whole life are coming back to haunt him, literally. It's a reckoning, I guess. You know, I can think of many people, many times where, as I'd say to my kids, I, I made bad choices. And I, it's about when we're forced to face up to our shit.
1: Yeah, I found that really interesting because uh, looking back at when I was that age, I mean, i have done things that I'm ashamed of.
2: Yeah, Memory is imagination. We tell a version of the, of the past to ourselves. It's almost like we tell the version where we try to put ourselves in the best possible light. but it's, this is about when you can't escape. There's, there's nowhere to hide. You know, the light's too bright. As I say it's a, it's a story about the failings of men. There's a lot of women in it too. And yeah. I think the women are really I think they're some of the more interesting characters because they're, they're shining a light on the bad behavior, and they're almost like a, in some respects, they're almost like a chorus, you know, talking about (laughs) the failings of these
1: blokes. And you hope that there's going to be some redemption.
2: (laughs) Yeah, a few people have gotten upset with me about his irredeemable. Mm. Well, there's
1: an incident with a dog. Is that the one you're referring
2: to? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, the dog's called Berkeley. Our family Mm. dog is called Berkeley. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When you talk about that, I mean, Pin does some other pretty bad things. I guess that speaks to us, doesn't it? How we react it's, to
2: things. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's a short novel, as you know, and and you know, I sort of wrote it like a poem. You know, it's not poetry. It's not you know, no. people don't need to be scared of it. But it's not you know. But I wrote it like a poem. Is in one piece. You know, just one piece that sort of just drags people through. That was my that was my ambition anyway.
1: I read this a second time in preparation. It sort of drags you along. It sort of, it took me probably six or seven hours just to, I read it straight. That's my ambition. That's great to hear. I was interested, there's a a sort of quasi-romance or something happening between Pin and the mother of this boy that he protects. I was interested in that. It's never quite clear what,
2: if anything, actually happens. There's a lot of stuff that gets left out and mm. gets left up to the reader to to make up their minds about. There's a weird triangle mm. between Pin and this friend and his mum. It's almost incestuous in some ways. My take on it was that, yeah, things do happen. I leave a lot of stuff there that's up to the reader to decide. I've always believed that the most important decisions you make in the, in any piece of writing is what you leave out, because it amplifies that which remains,
1: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've got some wonderful characters in there. In a way, you want to know more about them. I mean, particularly uh, Pin's daughter, Anna, who is trans. She's a very interesting character in her own right.
2: The Anna character is interesting because, you know, one thing that occurred to me after I wrote it, and I wasn't, like, I wasn't thinking, of oh, this character is going to be fulfilling this role. Mm. But if you think about the pressures that when I was a kid, there were certain types of blokes you could be. You know, and what it meant to be, and what was blokey and what wasn't. And I remember getting grief in the street because of the way I looked and things like that. The hope for me of Anna, in hindsight, is that Anna is a character who speaks of a possibility where that need for conformity isn't quite as strong. Yeah, I loved Anna. I thought Anna was one of those people I'd I'd like to spend time with. I'm not sure about Pin, but yeah, definitely Anna.
1: (laughs) And also Anna's mother and Pin's estranged wife, She's a very
2: interesting character too. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. my wife was reading it and she was like, it's an angry middle-aged woman. What are you trying to tell me? And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, not you. <laughs> totally not you. Again, it's that whole, I think the, the women in it are really important for me because this is told in Pin's voice. It's Pin's mm. version of the truth. There's stuff that Pin just can't say because he can't face up to the shame of his behaviour. And the inklings you get quite often are from the characters that are sort of like in conversation with Pin and are calling bullshit on Pin's stuff. Mm. And they're particularly the women, particularly his ex. She knows the kind of man he is, even though he can't say it.
1: Well, it's interesting because although, as you say, she knows what a hopeless person Pin is, she still obviously has some affection for him because she takes it, rescues him really, doesn't she?
2: Yeah, well, it's one of those things where you have a kid with someone, it's tied to them to a degree, and I think that was what it speaks of is that, you know, she's making one last attempt to try to have some sort of connection on behalf of their child, Anna, mm-hmm. and to try to actually repair a bridge that pinned burnt. Again, it says a lot about parenting, and families are very messy, complicated mm-hmm. things, or at least mine is.
1: Well, the other character who's very interesting is Cox. Yes,
2: Benedict Cox. He's a politician. He's a guy that went through high school with Pin. He's one of these blokes who's a you know, private school boy who wants to be prime minister. He's the assistant minister for regional tourism. Shiny shoes, shiny suit, always looking at the phone. The sort of person that when they, when you're in a room and you're talking to them they're always looking over your shoulder because they're looking for someone more important to speak to. You know, that that yeah. sort of person. He's always on the make. Everyone's a comrade. He's hardly a uh, golf Whitlam. You know, I'll put it that yeah. way. He's, you know, and he says comrade. There's a great deal of irony there. He's not any sort of person you wouldn't trust with your lunch money. I'll put it that mm. way.
1: Yeah, he taunts poor Pin and encourages this bad behaviour. Really. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pin's a staffer, and the staffer he works for is Cox, mm. you know, is Benedict Cox. Politicians and the staffers, it's a very weird relationship. It's an upstairs-downstairs relationship in that you're you're working for these people, you're living with them just about. You're their spear carrier and you're their handmaiden, and the way that one staffer put it to me, which I've never forgotten, he's like, politicians love you until they don't love you. And Cox is, is one of those people. He uses pin when it suits him and he disposes of pin when it suits him. Yes. You know.
1: so there are certain writers that have influenced you, do you think?
2: It's a good, good question. I think that, you know, I think you did a tweet. I think you mentioned Tobias Wolf. I used to live in Berkeley and I remember I read all of Tobias Wolf and mm. loved his stuff. And I remember actually going to a reading he gave in Berkeley. He had the best moustache I'd ever seen. He was this incredibly imposing (laughs) figure. I was a young guy in my twenties. You know, I didn't even go up and say hello to him because he was such a, you know, giant. But I think that I love a great sentence. There's not a particular writer that comes to mind, but what I'm trying to do is write, I'm trying to write the perfect sentence and then followed by another perfect sentence by another perfect. That's that's and so I'm rather obsessive about it. Yeah. Yeah, there was a sensibility about the, the
1: style of writing I found yeah, very special. Yeah, it did devote Tobias Wolf, I suppose, partly because, I mean, he writes about young men and boys in schools. And
2: and writes so beautifully. Yeah, and, and you have too. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's funny because I was chatting with Hunter, you know, who's my publisher and also my editor, and I've worked with him now for four books. And he reckons that since I had a stroke, my writing's changed. It's become more emotional. And I think that that's probably true. I think that what's definitely become is that since I had the stroke, everything has been more loaded. In that I'm thinking, everything's got to like this has got to be my best book. You know, it's got to be the most important. It's if it's crap, I'm not letting it out of the house. And I I feel like I'm really happy with the book. You know, I think you know I hope it finds a good readership. But I think it's the best piece of fiction I've ever written. I think it really stands up. It, I think it's prob- I think it's the best book I've written. I think it's. Re- I'm really happy with it. You know, that's that's and that's the most I can hope for. Yeah. You
1: know. No, well, I think you've achieved something really good there, and um, I hope it finds a readership too. It certainly deserves to. It is incredibly hard for writers to find audiences at the moment. Things like this can help, but I just do recommend it to everyone. It's a really refreshing piece of writing and something quite different than a lot of Australian writing that you might have read recently. Um, so congratulations, Joel. It's it's really terrific. And are you still working on stuff? And
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm still, you know, working. Well, I'm obviously, I'm freelance writing, so I do my speech writing. I've been trying to get a documentary off the ground that involved Paul Keating. So I spent a lot of time with Paul Keating last year, which was very interesting, oh, yeah. and education in itself. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm sort of helping someone, you know, ghostwrite a book, as writers do, and I've got a couple of other novels that I'm ready to that I need to next year start writing. is always there, but to be honest, I feel more like I'm in a fiction mode, and I think that oh. novels, I don't want to write, wait another 10 or 12 years for the next novel. I'm hoping to get a decent one out in the next couple. again in the next couple of years. I
1: um, we'll look forward to that. Thanks so much for your time today. It was really terrific. And thank you for writing the book. I, so I really enjoyed it, and I, I do hope it finds the audience it deserves. Because okay. Deserves a wide readership. Thanks, Mark, and thanks for reading it. <laughs> My pleasure.
0: <laughs> Judas Boys is available via all reading stores, and if of interest, I know for a fact there are copies signed by Joel at our Carlton store. The book is also available via our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. In this month's edition, there's a very poignant portrait of Mark's time with the company from his son and successor in all things books and readings, Joe Rubin. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins.
2: Thank you for listening.